Welcome to the 223rd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with William Shell, author of the mystery novel, Death of a Siren. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Bill Shell, author of A Death of a Siren. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Great. Well, can you read two or three pages from your novel, Death of a Siren? All right. I'll give it a spin. I wrapped the remains of my tattered canvas boat shoes around my feet and looked up at the strange building that was staring down at me. I then choked down the last of my foul water, which did little to quench my thirst, and manhandled the dinghy over the side of the boat. I hadn't seen any signs of life near the stone building, which I was already thinking of as the castle, but there had to be some. Oddities like that don't just grow out of the ground on their own. Not even on an island so distant, ephemeral, and otherworldly that many doubted it ever existed, even 150 years after its discovery. I rode across the cove to the beach directly below the castle and sprang into the shallow water. After hauling the dinghy up on the stony beach, I paused to catch my breath. From where I stood, the building seemed shrouded in in shadows. Whether this was due to the light or the angle from which I was viewing it or the color of the stones used to construct it, I don't know. In fact, I didn't really care since my mind was fixed at the moment on water, cool, clear, fresh water. I sprinted up a path that led inland, the thin rubber soles of my shoes immediately proving no defense against the stony ground. The ground leveled off 50 yards up the path. On either side, I was surrounded by a small but prospering vegetable garden filled with tomatoes, spinach, or some other green, and several kinds of beans. It was, I thought, a near miracle considering the dry, thin, sandy soil from which the plants were emerging, and a a miracle in the result of great labor. Twenty yards later, I passed through a low hedge of cactus into a sort of formal garden. Various types of cactus and agave had been laid out in a pattern with paths running between the beds. Odd, I thought but appropriate considering the soil. I continued through the prickly desert garden and found myself standing on a patio paved in what seemed an arbitrary pattern with the same tan, brown, and black volcanic rocks used in the rest of the construction. Hello, I shouted. Is anybody there? There was no reply except the gentle flapping of what looked like white curtains in one of the windows, and the chirpy screeches of the little gray-brown finches that watched me from the surrounding bush. The castle was considerably larger than I had realized before. Another wing of rough mottled stone stretched inland away from the cove. On closer examination, I could see there was no glass in the windows. The openings were protected only by crude wooden shutters. Directly ahead of me lay a large opening in the stone wall flanked by heavy doors of weathered wood planks. Inside, all I could see was darkness. 
It was like looking into the mouth of a dark cave that somehow absorbed the sunlight. After almost three continuous months at sea, I was out of shape, sweating and puffing from the hike up from the beach. I paused to catch my breath. I watched as a little lizard chased an even smaller one up the stone wall. The lizards paused, the pursuer's throat puffing in and out like a kid's brightly colored balloon shimmering slightly as it did. And then the chase was on again. Time was passing and my mouth felt as if it were filled with sand. Bold action was called for. Hello, I shouted again, then marched across the patio and through the double doors into a sort of great hall. On my second step, I tripped over her. As my eyes adjusted to the relative darkness, I was able to see clearly a woman's body lying on the floor in front of a large formal sofa. She was dressed in uh, twill riding trousers and a khaki shirt, and she was drenched in blood. Blood that was no longer a lively gem-like red, but more of a restrained dirt brown. She was lying on the brown-stained floor on her side, left side, and bent slightly at the waist as if she'd crumpled as she fell. Then I realized a hatchet was sticking out of the right side of her head, and a riding crop was still clutched in her left hand. Is that enough to get us started? That is. That is. Great. Well, if someone... Go ahead. I always like to get to the body right away. Yeah, exactly. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about Death of a Siren yet, Siren yet, how would you describe your new novel? Uh, it's my first mystery. I've written thrillers in the past, and it uh, I, it's a mystery set in the 1930s, the late 1930s when all the intrigue and maneuvering preceding World War II was going on, especially in Latin America and the Galapagos, where it takes place, is in Latin America, part of Ecuador. And I'm, I'm hoping it's, uh, uh, on the one hand, a satisfactory whodunit, but also providing a, a taste of the exotic. I've found over the years that I've moved from this more standard home-based mysteries to ones that take place in strange places. Great. Well, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing Death of a Siren? Uh, yes. I, as I say, I've been doing thrillers for a while. For a long time, I thought I'd like to try a mystery. I was in the Galapagos when I was 16 years old. And the story, well, first of all, I fell in love with the place. Any 16-year-old would then, because this is in the 60s, 1960s, when it was really totally wild and barren. The, the story of the, uh, of the Baroness, there really was a German woman who apparently was a Baroness who was murdered, and I've never heard a complete explanation of who did it or why or all of that, just many theories. That stuck with me, and I wanted to, um, when I was thinking about doing a mystery, I wanted to explore the, 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 the whodunit, the exotic location, and also the theme of uh, fugitives, that everybody in, in this book is a fugitive of some sort, as one of the characters says in it, everybody in the Galapagos is fugitive, either from the law or from, from their own mind, from something. And I wanted to uh, explore that while also doing a mystery 
that I hope would people would enjoy uh, with the with the touch of the exotic. Great. Well, um, what has your writing journey been? What led you to writing your first novel? Well, I've been doing uh, educational materials, film strips, textbooks, those sort of things, from the late 1960s through the 80s. And I, all those years, was reading intrigue and naval stories. I spent a lot of time on boats and ships. And uh, so in the 80s, I decided that I could write a thriller as good as uh, as anybody else. And so I decided to, instead of writing film strips to bore children in uh, school, I would give my try in my spare time to do a novel. And and how was that experience for you, the, the first novel that you wrote? Oh, I rewrote it about a hundred times. It was a seven or eight year process. I finally got... Uh, uh, I went through uh, one or two agents who were never really committed. I finally just tossed it over the transom at Walker Book Company, which was then a one of the biggest of the independents. And they uh, they bought it, and it did fine. And so I decided to try a few more. And uh, And so I've been doing it, I won't say on the side, but it also hasn't been my absolutely primary activity ever since. Sure. So what advice would you have for aspiring writers who might be listening and are interested in writing their own novels or short stories? Well, it's gotten very, very complicated. In the past, like going back to the 60s, there were a number of independent publishers that were quite large, like Walker, who would accept um, submissions over the transom. Today, or up up until about four years ago, they they all disappeared, and none of the big houses would uh, accept them without an author. So then the advice was somehow find a, 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 an agent. So then my advice would have been, well, you're going to have to find an agent because absolutely nobody's going to look at it. In the last year or two, a couple smaller houses, a number of smaller houses have developed, and they, again, uh, except unagented submissions. I don't know how many books they sell, but they sell the books. They're there to sell books. They're not just there to fill the time. So if you've got something that you have written and you think it's good enough, you just have to go through Publishers Weekly or one of the other magazines filled with reviews and find smaller publishers, Google them, find out what their submission policy is. Right. Well, when you sit down to write, are there ever days that you need to do something to kind of jumpstart the process for yourself? I generally write sporadically. I, when, if I've got, when I do a book, and this isn't, a lot of people don't do it this way. When I do it, I generally have the idea of the opening scene and of the closing scene and of what it's all about. That middle 310 pages is a nightmare. So I, uh, I write sporadically. I do a, a, a synopsis, work out a synopsis and, and, and uh, almost an outline, but not quite a, a, a narrative synopsis. And then I just bang away and I have to rewrite. And there are days when I just look at the thing and say, I'm not ready for this. And so I trim the hedges or something. <laughs> um, and is that a process that you've developed over over the years of, of writing different novels? 
I guess it is. Now, when I was doing uh, nonfiction, the textbook stuff, that was just grinding it out. That was fairly methodical, and I always worked from an outline. As far as the fiction goes, yes, it just seems to have evolved. I I didn't consciously structure it. Sure. And did you find the process of writing a mystery or a whodunit different than the thriller? Yes, because you spend a lot more, at least I think you're supposed to spend a lot more time uh, developing the characters, uh, trying to put in a certain amount of tension, but it doesn't, you don't have to think up a, uh, a catastrophic action every 50 words. In a thriller, you really have to have three world wars per page and a large body count. Um, in, in the mystery, as I understand it, you're supposed to... Uh, uh, I was supposed to explore the characters and, and give the the reader and, and, and spew a lot of facts out and try and keep the reader thinking that he or she almost knows who did it, but doesn't really. Gotcha. And then when, when you reveal it at the end, you want them to be able to say, oh, of course, that was obvious from the first page. Why didn't I see it? <laughs> so are there books and authors that inspire your own writing? Well, I'll tell you, recently, the last couple of years, I've become quite fascinated with uh, with um, Elliot Patterson, who has the, the Shan stories about the, the disgraced uh, Chinese police officer in Tibet, and also his series about uh, North America during the Seven Years' War with, with a, a, a Scotsman. And that is really where I started... Um, the, the whole idea of um, the fugitive aspect started growing on me. It had been there, but after I read those, he has developed it to quite a quite a high point. All his protagonists are fl- fleeing from something, either fleeing from something or exiled against their will, and they have to, having entered a totally new world, having no chance of going back to their old world. They have to start all over again. So are you working on another novel now? Uh, I'm working on uh, half-heartedly on a couple. It's, it's, uh, it's difficult for me anyway to, to reconcile what people are reading in large numbers and what I enjoy writing. I realize that uh, I'm not 100% in the sink. So I'm busy trying to reshape some of my thoughts to be uh, suitable for today's reader. And I'm going to have a lot of trouble explaining exactly what I mean by that. If I could explain it, I could do it. (laughs) Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Bill Shell, author of Death of a Siren. The book is in bookstores now, so go grab a copy. And Bill, thanks for doing this interview. Well, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.